You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. But I could stay right at Sugarloaf. The skiing's great. It's the best skiing in the East. It's the best mountain in the East. And I ski them all. But it is, it is a special place. It really is. I, I can't say enough about it. It's an interesting job, and it's just another twist on the skiing or riding adventure. So, you know, you're not just skiing the trails over and over every single day. You're actually going out and being part of the process and being part of the mountain. So, it's fun. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Hardingly Smith of the Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 169, Sugarloaf, airing for the first time on Sunday, December 7, 2014. Sugarloaf in Carabasset Valley is one of Maine's favorite mountains. The first trail was cut in 1950 by the Sugarloaf Mountain Ski Club and a group of locals known as the Bigelow Boys. Since then, Sugarloaf has become a close-knit community of skiers, snowboarders, and outdoor enthusiasts. Today we speak with Sugarloafer and schooner captain Kip Files and Jamie Goodudi of the Sugarloaf Ski Patrol, both of whom are featured in Maine Magazine's December issue. We know you'll enjoy hearing more about the Sugarloaf family and perhaps be inspired to take a trip up there yourself. Thank you for joining us. On Love Main Radio, we really enjoy talking to people who love their lives. And in front of us, I have one of these individuals. I can tell just by having spent a few minutes with him before getting on the air. This is Kip Files. Kip was born in Bangor, Maine. He is the owner and captain of the schooner Victory Chimes. He's been doing windjammer cruises on the coast of Maine for 25 years and has been a sugar lover since 1961. During the winters, he works at W Ski TV at Sugarloaf. Channel 17. Channel 17, so you're a know broadcaster. before you go. <laughs> so you, you have a life that um, I think many people would envy, and Susan Conley wrote about this in the Sugarloaf issue, so people can read about this and the close relationships you've had with um, people at Sugarloaf. But this is a very intentional life on your part. What it is. It, uh, you know, it wasn't something I planned, but it just my lifestyle allowed me to do it. And so I, I just, the sailing aspect of it, it wasn't, when I started in, in, in sailing and, and got into these commercial sail, I mean, you, uh, the opportunity to to, um, to grow in that industry was small unless you owned your own vessel. But as it went on, the more vessels were built after 1976 and more of the traditional stuff came in. And then uh, one thing led to another and ended up with the victory chimes. That's a long story. That'd take a half an hour how I ended up with that. But uh, all that time that I was doing the sailing part, I had this passion for skiing. I was never a great skier. I'm an accomplished skier, but not a great skier. And, uh, but I had this passion for it. And um, in 1961, it started when I, when I went with some friends from Bangor 
to Sugarloaf. We drive over. We, we were weekend skiers. We drive over on a Saturday, drive back to Bangor, get up on Sunday and drive over. Didn't have a place there. And so that sort of opened up. You know, you live in Maine and you're in the winter. What are you going to, you got to, if you're a kid, you want to be outside, you have to embrace winter. And so here it is, snow. And so I hate this. And I just loved doing it. And I did it all through high school and then in college. And then right after college, I moved to Sugarloaf. After taking a, this is, after taking a vessel, delivering a vessel to the Bahamas, and uh, then I left the vessel there, and then my flight took me back to, to Sugarloaf. Well, it took me to Portland or to Bangor. I can't remember which one, but then after that was done, I just I knew I, I was going to head to go skiing because I, I didn't want to have a season without having skiing. And I had fallen in love with Sugarloaf as a young man because that's where we skied. And then as I got older, I mean, I could have gone anywhere, anywhere in the world to ski, but the reason you get to Sugarloaf is... One is the mountain, and then you stay because of the people. The people that I met there are just, there's no other place like it. As you drive up to 27 or come in, and you get to Kingfield, and you just feel this ah, release. And you get up there, and it's just, it's, it's a way of life. It really is. I mean, that, that sign, care about your life will never be the same. That's pretty much it. That has been pretty much it for me. And what's amazing is that the people that I settled with there after I got out of college in the 70s, a lot of them are still there. Never left. And some of them never skied. <laughs> Go to a ski resort and never ski. You know, figure that one out. It's got to be something there. And uh, I don't know if I could talk about how what it is I, or write a book about what it is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's one of those abstract things that you just gather in your mind and, and pick it out. But. We had Josh and John Christie on the show last John, year. Yeah, yeah. And John is an old friend of yours. Yes, he is. He's, I wouldn't say old. That's uh, the wrong term, is it? <laughs> How about long time long friend? time friend? Yes, is when I, and 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 John. Uh, the first time I met John, he used to do this. He was director of Sugarloaf, and he used to come over to Bangor and do the Bud Levitt show. And of course, he was from Sugarloaf, and he was one of our idols as a kid growing up. That, that makes John a lot older than I am. But and so, and so they used to plow the back of the parking lot, and John would do some turns, and we'd go over and just. Oh, that's John Christie. Look, look. And he'd get about two turns in and he'd talk. And he was, his, his, his manner, is, he's always been a funny guy. He's, he's got a great wit. And uh, there was a turn at the time that they were teaching called the Stem Christie. We thought he invented it. This is how we knew. <laughs> he won't deny that he didn't, but I don't think he really did. So I've known John since then. And then we have a lot of mutual friends. And then when I finally moved back up to Sugarloaf, he would, he'd, go, he'd gone and departed the skiing industry for a while. He was over at Sunday, um, over at um, um, Saddleback. So anyway, and then finally came back and, and sort of we sort of reignited that friendship. He's a great man. He really is. He's fun to ski with, too. He's just fun to be around. It's amazing to me that um, we have such a dichotomy. You know, I'm a doctor. I see patients who are older, and many of them are very sedentary, and I couldn't imagine them walking down the street without assistance, never mind getting on the slopes. But when you go to Sugarloaf and some of these other mountains, um, you see people who have been skiing for oh, years, years and years. and they're 80-year-olds. Yeah. You know? They so, just get up. They don't ski as they used to. But uh, I think it's all about, well, it's a passion for skiing and there's a passion for Sugarloaf. Um, and I think through all, all this turmoil that Sugarloaf had and the skiing industry had throughout the passion of the people in the mountain, um, kept it alive, but there was part of their life that they're not willing to give up, and besides the fact, it's fun. 
really is. Put two pieces of wood on your, or metal or fiberglass on your feet and slide down a hill. You know, it's a useful thing to do. And and so people do it until they can't. I mean, my dad skied with me when he was in his 80s. He's 97 now, but he gave it a whirl in his 80s. I mean, went down the small slopes, and but he, he wasn't a skier growing up, but he did it as a young man. Oh, it's a, it's winter. Get outside. He gets. Imagine sitting in front of a TV all winter long or something. I'd, I'd go nuts. Well, there's also something about the setting. And in Maine, we're so fortunate because after a snowfall, you can go up and you can be one of the first ones on the mountain and you see what, you see the trees, you see the mountains around you. You know, you get to see, sometimes you get to see the sun set really early, but there is so much beauty to be found in winter in Maine. And I think if you're a skier and you're in the right place at the right time, you get to see that beauty. I was up to Sugarloaf this weekend, it's home, and it snowed. And it went from fall to winter. And the personality of the forest immediately changes. It's winter. You look around where you were looking at, you know, gray and, and trees with no leaves and stuff like that that became white. It's a complete personality change. And then there's a buzz around the mountain because it's the snow that, well, not that it'll last or anything, but the snow guns went on and stuff. And so it's this rebirth of this wonderful industry that's just come along. People are gnawing at the bit to go. I'm fortunate enough that in my job at SKI, I get to go up with a ski patrol in the morning. And, and, and so I'm up there sometimes at sunrise. And to be up on that mountain and look over at the Bigelows on sunrise, some of those, you know, it's, I don't, my vocabulary is not good enough to explain it. You know, I take pictures of it and we show it on, on, on the TV and so forth. But I, I'm not that I don't know what the words are. I can't, I can't explain what that feeling is when you're up there looking. You look over that Bigelow Range, you look around, and you go, my, where else would you want to be? It is, I mean, I've skied the Rockies. I skied Europe. And, and it's all beautiful. But maybe it's because I look across that and I say, ah, this is home. You know, maybe it's that feeling that makes me, it's so special. I don't know. I, I can't tell you what it is. But, you know, in, on, in the water, they call it sea fever. And the skiing... I don't know what they call it. Ski fever? I don't know. Well, you mentioned the ski patrol, and um, I was able to go up and be with the ski patrol to write an article for Maine Magazine, which is in the Sugarloaf issue, along with the article that you're in, written by Susan Conley. And um, that's also a very interesting thing. What I noticed about the people who are on ski patrol is the same camaraderie camaraderie that you've described with your friends um, in the Sugarloaf community. Well, a lot of those ski patrol are my friends. You know, and it's a passion that they have. They come from all walks of life, all economic diversity, and uh, but they have this passion. Um, and part of their passion in the skiing is the ski patrol. And they um, they work. Oh my God, their their day is a long day, and they're up the mountain when when other people are still having a cup of coffee and going. I don't know if I want to go up there today or not. You know, but they're there. They're open in the mountain. They're closing. They're on scene for rescue. They're given directions. It's a huge, huge passion that they have, uh, 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 and, and a huge commitment. I really have a lot of respect for what they do and how they do it, because I mean they were they had training this weekend. You know they were practicing evacuating lifts and all that type of thing this weekend. And it's the same people. It's like the restaurant you go to at Sugarloaf, and and just keep. I mean, it's the same people every year. It's not a huge turnaround. <laughs> Once you get there, you know, you might as well stay there because you're really never going to leave, really. 
I don't think anyway. I didn't. Now you balance out your love of frozen water with your love of unfrozen water. And that's helpful. Yeah. Right. So you have a windjammer out I of do. Rockland. Victory chimes. Yeah. Victory chimes. You know, if you're if you're if you're a state of Mainer, and every state had its own quarter made in 2003, we printed our quarter. Every state has its own quarter. If you look on the back of the state of Maine quarter, that's my vessel. Go figure. Uh, but so the passion for for historical vessels on the coast of Maine is unsurpassed in the United States. We have the largest uh, commercial commercially operated sailing fleet, no engines, just sailing fleet in the in North America. Um, more than 70% of our fleet are national historic landmarks. Some of our vessels were built back in 1871. And it's um, these vessels um, just sort of gravitated to Maine because it was the last, the last place that these vessels could still generate income because they were all built. Not because it's fun to build a funky old wooden boat. It's to generate income for their owners. And some of these vessels, I mean, they just, they, were, they had no other business to do. And in the, in, the, in the 1930s and 40s, this windjammer business started. So people thought, wouldn't it be fun to go out on these vessels before they all disappear? And it created enough income that people could make a living taking people on trips, overnight trips. It started day trips and then went on an overnight trip when the day trip, because the wind change couldn't get back. <laughs> Get back in. So here we go. And so uh, it started, and it's it's um, what we call a windjammer. Um, and it's, it was at one time a type of vessel, and now it is what we do. Instead of what you were, it is now what we do. We go windjamming, and it's overnight. You know, it's sort of like executive camping at sea. It's not your cruise ship. It's a different type of thing altogether, where we don't have a schedule. We go sailing we go overnight. Where are you going to go? Where will we end up? Maine is so perfect for this because we have 3,000 islands, or maybe more at low tide. And uh, they go out almost 30 miles, so well protected. It still has this feeling of wilderness. It's the same look when you get the top of Sugarloaf and look over Bigelow. You get on the deck at Isla Ho on the vessel and look, and you might see one little house. You know, it has that same feeling, this wilderness feeling. And so it's perfect for them. And it's a wonderful season because it's summertime and it's June through September. And it's easy on these older vessels and stuff. So it's great. So this all gravitated toward Maine. And I get into it as a young man because I don't even know. I, 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 st I grew up on a lake outside of Bangor and learned to sail when I, I don't know, four or five years old with clotheslines attached to a, a peapod, which is a rowing canoe, and we had built a sail for it. And then when I was nine or ten, my uncle and my dad ended up with this friendship sloop. It was a sailing lobster boat. And so all of a sudden I'm on the coast and it's opened up this world to me. And I saw these old vessels and they really interested me. I did all the racing start, the high-tech stuff. It wasn't for me. I liked traditional vessels so much more. And so I got into the windjammer business as a kid, washing dishes, doing anything I could to get on the water. And that sort of expanded into doing other things, opening other doors. I've sailed square riggers. I've sailed vessels that are from 1841 on up and... and been around, it's just taken me around the world. Um, I've been very fortunate about it. So uh, it is a huge passion to me. It's a huge passion. And saving these vessels and saving this way of life is hugely important. My vessel was one of 3,000 built on the East Coast. It's a three masted schooner. As far as I can tell, now other historians may argue the point, but it was the most successful sailing vessel the American, North Americans ever built. We, if we didn't invent the schooner, we perfected it. 
in the new world. I can go. I mean, I, I can take you a twenty minute show right through this whole historical thing. But and then we built two master, three master, four, five, six, up to seven masted schooners. But the three master was the most successful sailing vessel we ever built. This one has survived, has never missed a year of commercial sail in 115 years, and that's the Victory Chimes. Absolutely phenomenal. And she's been in private hands all her life. She's done it on her own. She doesn't get grants. She can't, even though she's a National Historic Landmark, she can't get grants. She can't get any tax incentives that they gave private citizens to own buildings that are National Historic Landmarks. So on her own, without an engine, she's a sailing vessel, 170 feet long, has never missed a year of commercial sale. She made it on her own. Absolutely phenomenal. And the reason she did it is because she got to Maine at the right time. And then she always found an owner that would take care of her. And then she uh, always found people that were interested in going. Without that generated income, all we'd have is pictures. Or oh, maybe they could drag her up in Wiscasset. Do you remember those vessels in Wiscasset? <laughs> we could drag her up there. You could watch her rot. Oh, God. But so... I don't know how I got onto that, but this, that's how I got into wind jamming and, and uh, a huge passion for that, as I do for skiing. Here on Love, Maine Radio, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Making peace with your finances is easier said than done. We've spent a lifetime being programmed by our beliefs and behaviors interacting with our inherited nature. Making peace with all of that is one of the biggest steps forward you can take. It's a step that can certainly remove a lot of anxiety from your life. Consider this scenario that a lot of us have gone through, or that you may be going through right now. You have money to support yourself and your family, but it's not always there at the right time, or you don't believe that you can access it. That happened to me recently, and also in a big way in 2008. Like you, I have experienced these financial highs and lows. It feels as though you're on some kind of a strange roller coaster, and that you're constantly wrestling with what you want versus what you need. You've got bills and really want to pay them off. You're sort of living in the past so you can move forward. Finding peace in the middle of our culture can make it difficult to make good financial decisions, especially if you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. The first step is to stop and breathe. Look around. Walk around. Talk to people. Trade and commerce are going to happen. Money is what makes it easier. Like Shepherd Financial on Facebook, and we will help you evolve with your money peacefully. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. And it's through your work with Windjammers and the Victory Chimes and the work that you've done down in Mystic, Connecticut, that you were able to throw out the first pitch oh, for the Red Sox. Yeah, go figure. 
some kid from Bangor, Maine, gets to throw the first pitch. I think I think Seth Westcott and I are the only two Sugarloafers that have thrown the first pitch. The difference between Seth is he's a gold medal winner. <clears throat> Fun to ski with, uh, if you can keep up with him. But um, yeah, I was working for Mystic on, on the Charles W. Morgan, which is the which was a whaling ship, and it hadn't been sailed in a century. So they hired me to to um, to sail it. We ended up in Boston and. Uh, they had a Mystic Seaport night at Fenway. And about three weeks before we got there, they said, uh, asked me, can you throw a baseball? Well, when I was 10 or 11, I did, yeah. So could you throw the first pitch? And I said, absolutely. I'm not going to, not, not you know, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So I bought a couple of gloves and a couple of baseballs. And, <clears throat> and then every port we would stop with the Charles W. Morgan, I'd take one of the crew members ashore and mark off the distance and start throwing the baseball so I wouldn't miss. And then, so I nailed it. Yeah, yeah, 30,000 people watching. It was, uh, just to be out of that historic, because it's, it's a, it, it, you know, it's not a stadium, it's, it's Fenway. And the history there, I mean, it's one of the, it, it started at Fenway and hopefully it'll end at Fenway baseball. But you just think of all those people that were there and all saw the games and all these great athletes that were out throwing pitches and on that field that had the honor and the privilege to be out there. And then I got to walk out there. Holy smokes. It's quite humbling. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. So we've talked about the intentionality um, aspect. You know, you intentionally are living this life that you love. And we can, we can tell that you love it. Anybody who's listening can tell that you love yeah, it. Yeah, I have a passion, don't I? And then there's also <laughs> the fact that you've grabbed these opportunities. And I believe you were, you were telling me about a conversation you had with your father 40 years ago. My dad. God love him. He's still alive. Ninety, he'll be ninety-seven in December. My all-time hero. He really is. And <laughs> his just his way of life and, and growing up was always this passion for life. And he made decisions in his life um, after World War II when he got, you know, when he could finally settle down and stuff. Because he was a college student when the war broke out, and that sort of changed everything. He became a naval aviator. And he, but his, it was always family first and then passion for life second. And so I, well, although not, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of opportunities and it was given, it was given to me by my family. And not that we had lots of money, but we just did things as a family, all this stuff, it was great stuff and always an adventure. And so I remember driving down and I might've been in high school, it doesn't matter, probably in high school. And we're driving 95 for some reason. It's my dad. This is typical of my dad. I get my learner's permit, and we were going to drive to... We had to go to New Jersey because he had family in New Jersey. And so he and I were going to drive down. And the day I went and passed my test, <clears throat> back then the adult had to be with you and stuff like that, he sits in the back seat, gives me the car keys, and says, go to New Jersey. <laughs> so I drove to New Jersey, the first day I'd ever driven. This is, this is my dad. And so uh, but on one of these drives, he says, Kip, you know, you live in a country where you have a choice. Very fortunate to have this choice. You can go with the quality of life or the quantity of life. And he says, really, I don't think that, you know, if you're buried in a gold sarcophagus or a pine box, it makes a whole lot of difference at the end. And so it's not a dress rehearsal. If I were you, I'd go with the quality of life. Enjoy it as much as you can because we're all one heartbeat away from having that part of the journey over. Go for it. And I took that to heart. And watching him anyway and his passion for life, he still has it. He still has it. He's struggled to get around, 
but he still has this wonderful passion for life. You can see it in his eyes and his, and his mannerisms. He's still at 97. Although he said the other day, he said to me the other day, you know, if you, if you call me up and I don't answer, I'm in a happy place. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but that's his passion for life. You know, he'll, he'll go. He'll be, he'll be all right. You can drop me off the side of the road. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, but if I'm going to continue on this path, and, and, and then I'm going to enjoy, enjoy life as best I can. And so he gave me that, and I took it to heart. Whether he had said that or not, and I had followed this path, I don't know. But I, I'd like to think that he was the one that steered me on to these great adventures that I'd have. You know, I, uh, I'm going to leave. Take a, this is during the Vietnam War. I'm taking that. I'm taking a semester off and taking this vessel to the Caribbean. And, and, and we're going to sail down there and then go around through the Panama Canal to San Diego. And he says, when are you going? When are you leaving? And so the problem with that was that you had was this thing called the draft board. <laughs> you had to be careful because you had this student deferment, so you had to play this game. But anyway, so I did that with his blessing. He said, "Help back. Oh, this is great. Sounds great. Go for it." You know, that was an adventure. Why not? So he was always my hair. When I bought the Victory Chimes, he was the first one to go. Yeah, everybody else thought I was nuts. Buy a, you know. This big, large wooden vessel, and and decide you're gonna make a living at it. You know, everybody's like, "You're nuts," but he is his, with his encouragement. Off I went. Yeah. And he was encouraged by his father. You said. I think so. Although I didn't know him very well, but he talks about his dad a lot. I didn't. I remember my great. He died when I was six or seven, and so your image is just this physical image. It's not a really. I didn't get to know him. Just a physical image, but. I know my grandfather, my father's father, through my father. <clears throat> and I think it was either my father, my mother. His mother was always up for his hair. And my dad decided to go to get a pilot's license. And his father were like, well, there's no money in it. What are you doing that for? But his mother would secretly pay him under the to get money to do these lessons. So I think a lot of his life's passion came from um, his mother. And his sense of humor came from his father. But I don't, I can't, you know. You'd have to ask him. I don't know. That's just a guess on my part. So what's next for you? What do you think your life is going to hold, or does it really matter? Because you seem oh, like really you enjoy... It really doesn't. There are a lot of adventures I'd like to take while well, I could still do them uh, in the sailing and skiing world and, and other things I'd just like to look at. But the, the Victory Chine sort of holds me here, and I love what I do. But I have to be here all summer long. I can't take off. Although I last year I did, and I found out that the vessel could actually operate without me. And so... I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things. I, I have this passion about about history, and I would like to explore history a little bit more. Because I think as a society, we stand in one spot and we look down at our feet, and, and, the, and we don't look, we don't dare to look up and turn around to look at where we've been or what our consequences are, look ahead. And so I don't know about ahead, and that's all, you know, we all can take that, but... There's something about looking behind that's that's real. And so I'd like to get people to stand up and look behind them to see how they got to where they are. I mean, this is this whaling vessel I took out this summer. And it's, oh, whaling vessel. Well, yeah, slaughtering whales wasn't something that we like to talk about, although it was a huge part of the growth of this, of this country. Without it, we might not be where we are today. Without the innovation of sailing vessels, that's another whole thing. 
I mean, you ask a high school kid, name an important historic commercial sailing vessel built in the United States. We built a lots of, we built record beaters that, that haven't been beat today. The records haven't been beat today. These old, big old wooden vessels. You know what they'll say? Because I take high school. They'll look at you and go, uh, Mayflower? Mm, not really American built. <laughs> but then we have no sense of how we got to where we are. It was hugely important. And so the whaling industry was hugely important. And, and thank God we discovered oil in the ground that saved the whales. But, the sail, but it was a huge part of American history, a huge part. And we, we lit the world. If you wanted to have a lamp on, because candles were too expensive, if you wanted to have light in the 1820s, you had to have whale oil, or you were living in the dark. And so that's hard for us to put our mind around. And you ask a sailor of the 1840s, could we kill all the whales in the ocean? They'd look at you and go, absolutely, there's too many of them, absolutely not. We can't do it. Well, when we started to mechanize it, we almost did it. But, um, but it was a huge, important part of our growth, and not only of, of the energy that it created and fueled the Industrial Revolution, but all the businesses that were around it. Coopers that built barrels and sailmakers and all that. It just fueled this. The Bedford, Massachusetts, which was the whaling capital of the world, was the richest town in North America during the whaling industry. Well, uh, I guess it's like Houston, you know, energy. So, uh, it was a nasty business, whaling, and but it, 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 so anyway, I get passionate about stuff like that. And so I would love to get and talk and, and get people excited about that. And then in skiing, I just, my passion for skiing is, is, is so great. And, uh, but I could stay right at Sugarloaf. I mean, I, I travel around and do some skiing, but I went there because that was the best skiing available to me, and I stayed there because I met guys like John Christie. <laughs> I mean, it's loaded with them. They're still there. And then the younger people that are coming up, that are the next gen, they're still there. They're still, still coming. And it's a wonderful place. I can't... The skiing's great. It's the best skiing in the East. It's the best mountain in the East. And I've skied them all. I could, I mean, I had skied them all. And, but, you know, and, and maybe it's because it's so far away, it's hard to get to that people, but it is, it is a special place. It really is. I, I can't say enough about it. Man, anyway, it sounds like I'm, I'm a spokesman for the mountain, although I don't work for the mountain. I, I, I just, that's why I'm there anyway. I encourage people to read more about you and your relationship with John Christie in the Sugarloaf issue of the magazine. I haven't magazine. seen it yet. Are you going to show me a copy? I think we might have a copy we can oh, show you. Oh, no. Yeah, well, I can't. i got to be sworn to secrecy, though, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's going to work for you. It seems to me like you... Oh, no, no. I, it's in the... What do they say in Seinfeld? In, it's in the vault. It's in the vault. Okay. <laughs> no. no, well, yeah, it's... Uh, I, um, I think as a, as, a, as a pass holder, I get the magazine. Because it comes, it comes to my house, yeah. and it's it, it is a wonderful magazine. It's great. You've done some wonderful stuff with Maine. You can't, you know, it's just it's a great spot, and you do it. Your magazine does a wonderful job of of, of uh, exploring that. Well, thank you. You're welcome. I think we're as passionate about what we do as you are well, about. Well, it seems to be here, yeah. About you and right. your world. So. Yeah, great. So we've been speaking with Kip Files, who is a sugar loafer and also the owner and captain of the schooner Victory Chimes and also a broadcaster with WSKI-TV Sugarloaf. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you. It's fun. 
As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. I can't imagine that I will ever be an artist. While I appreciate all kinds of art, I know that creating it is just something I'm not able to do. I don't have that kind of talent, and I find myself in awe of the people who do. Realizing that all of us have different and unique abilities and that we can't be good at everything is a tough thing to admit. It's a lesson I teach my children, but it's a lesson we all need to remind ourselves of as adults. Recognizing your strengths and talents early are keys to happiness and success. And leveraging those talents that others have is another key to a success. So while I may never have a gallery exhibition of my artwork, I find great joy in knowing that what I and my entire team have is the talent to help businesses run better. We are the leverage an entrepreneur needs to be successful. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Many of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour listeners are skiers. We know this for sure, and we know that many of them are skiers at Sugarloaf. This is a mountain that I have spent myself some time at and spent some time with the ski patrol recently for an article um, which I've written for Maine Magazine. And today we have with us Jamie Gadudi, who is a president of Gadudi Builders and has been skiing at Sugarloaf since he was a teenager and has himself some experience with the ski patrol. So come on in and tell us all about what you've been doing for the last few years, Jamie. Well, this year will be year 10 at Sugarloaf Ski Patrol. Um, first got involved with this. Um, we've been Sugarloafers all our life and have spent a lot of time on the hill. And um, our children started going to the Bubble Cuffer programs, um, which is a teaching program for the kids where they join a group and they're with that group the entire winter. So we we're very engaged in the hill. And at the same time, this was back um, probably around 2000, year 2000 or so, I myself was going to be doing some um, construction at Sugarloaf as well and was starting to spend a lot of time there summer and winter. So got to low, know a lot of the local people and kind of um, experience more of the mountain scene and just skiing every day. And at the same time, I got to know some patrollers. I had some that were friends, and I got to know the patrol director. I always had an interest in um, first responding, etc. And I was skiing one spring, and I had heard it was a very quiet day, a beautiful day, but it heard about a fatality on the hill, and it was just kind of a sad thing to see happen on such a gorgeous day in such a gorgeous place. So later that day, I stopped by the site where it happened. There happened to be a few patrollers there, so I spoke with them and told them thanks a lot and said, sorry, you really had to deal with this, and I cycled back up on the mountain and I went by... Um, Bullwinkles, and there were some local people just kind of hanging out there. And there was a guy on the porch who had brought his another local, and he brought his bagpipes up and was playing Amazing Grace. And I was like, "This is, you know, 
this is all pretty amazing. And um, that sort of propelled me into wanting to join the force. And that summer I took a basic EMT class and that fall was um, signed up to go through patrol and its training. So you've been doing this for 10 years. So this will be year 10. Year 10. But you've been skiing since you were a teenager. Probably sat foot on Sugarloaf in like 1964. So back and forth since then. Yeah, and it was time to, you know, give back to the mountain that had given so much to our family. So I wanted to make a contribution and get involved with something I thought I'd be interested in. Have you always lived in Cape Elizabeth? I grew up in Falmouth. So haven't gone far. Across the bridge. Gone across the bridge. And what was it about Sugarloaf in particular that um, caused your family to want to spend so much time there? I think there was a lot of um, people from Falmouth that had some of the original A-frames, et cetera, at Sugarloaf. And a lot of their kids were our friends. And my dad was an avid skier, and you know he took us all around. But Sugarloaf was kind of the mecca for all of us as kids. And we never owned a place, but all my friends did, so it was a good thing. Had had a place to go. How many brothers and sisters did you have? Um, I had two older brothers. And they also skied? Yes. So when you decided that you were going to um, join the ski patrol, did it seem intimidating in any way? I mean, you are a contractor and you own your own company. Did you have experience in um, any sort of emergency medical services or... I had been a member of the Falmouth Fire Department a long time ago when I was in high school, so had some experience at that end of um, sort of emergency response, but not really on a medical basis. Um, as far as ski patrol goes, uh, no worries about the skiing end of it, you know, the ability there. Um, I had taken the EMTB class that summer, so had somewhat of a comfort level with the uh, medical end of it and um, had friends that were involved so it's a bit of a support network so not not too nervous about it not too nervous so what were some of the things that you experienced on the ski patrol that were different from um, what you experienced skiing at Sugarloaf just as a as a supporter of the mountain well now you're part of the system and you're not an end user so and it's kind of really fun to be part of that system. It's incredible what goes into that mountain operation to get the whole place going on a, on a daily basis. So you sort of observe all the activities going on from that end of it. And you're not just out there skiing away with a bunch of friends, but you know your eyes and ears are open, you're watching for what you're supposed to be looking for with your job, and just kind of keeping tabs on things. When I was there um, with the ski patrol, I was struck by, first of all, how early you get out on the mountain. You're you're up there before the lifts really open to the crowds. Um, also, that there really is this sense of, um, despite the early morning, and it was pretty dark when we first all got there. It was pretty cold because that was a day there ended up being a wind hold. Uh, people were happy to be there. They were very excited to be putting on their gear and heading up to the mountain. There was a sense of camaraderie. There was a sense that there was a job to be done, but um, everybody wanted to do it. There's um, 
never any hesitation about that in the locker room. It's a great, it's a great group, and um, everybody knows what they need to do. So, off you go. You know, you can't always uh, control the weather in Maine, as we know. So, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. And a lot of what you do, people think about ski patrol is, okay, somebody breaks a leg and need to be taken down the mountain, or, you know, maybe there's, um, you know, somebody runs into a tree or gets lost, these types of things. But the ski patrol really serves to help keep the mountain safe in lots of different ways. Tell me some of the things, some of the tasks, the responsibilities that ski patrol is involved in. Well, it starts in the morning, and um, we do a morning trail check, and pretty much try to send a patroller down every trail that's open and put eyes on the grooming, um, make sure equipment's out of the way, check on ropes, where they're supposed to be up, where they're supposed to be down, and um, report back if there's any issues and they'll send someone down if some signs need to be put up. Um, and from that point forward, once that is done and the mountain's open to public, we will cycle in and out of our top holding spot and keep eyes on how things are flowing for the day. Um, we have certain trails that do have slow family skiing only trails and we really make a point to get on those and impress upon people that we don't think are kind of going with the flow as we call it um, to kind of respect those signs because there's a lot of people that are trying to learn or they have little kids out and um, a lot of people come up to me when I'm standing by those signs, they say, thanks a lot. You know, we appreciate having a kind of a sanctuary while we're taking our kids out and getting them learning and all. So those kinds of things go on all day and um, just try to keep it all as a safe environment so everybody can enjoy the skiing experience. So sometimes just by your very presence, you're able to um, create a sense of calm and try to um, people who are maybe going a little too fast or being a little bit too erratic they might see a ski patroller and slow down and realize they need to be more mindful oh that definitely happens yeah so if we're if we're out there and especially on those marked trails um you'll you'll see those people that want to be clipping along and they'll they know where those signs are some of those people and they'll look up and all of a sudden they'll slow down a little bit and those that don't um go have a nice um pleasant talk with them and, you know, uh, give them a, a fair warning and say, just please respect what I'm saying and what these signs are saying and enjoy your day and, you know, go from there. And most are really good, you know, they respond well to that. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, 
this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. You also act as an ambassador. The way that you just described it wasn't, you're not coming in and trying to be the heavy. You're trying to foster some understanding that we're all trying to ski down the mountain together. So you are representing Sugarloaf. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So have a lot of fine conversations going up lifts with people. They tend to start to talk to you and ask about patrolling and all of that. And I ask them about their experience at Sugarloaf and hoping that they're having a good time and they have any questions so a lot of good conversations happen there's also um on the good days when you're just making sure everybody's safe and all the trails are well marked and everything is in a good place things can be fairly calm but it's just like being on a rescue squad or being on the fire department some days there are things that happen that maybe you couldn't have even foreseen um i remember several years back there was actually a lift that came down and I'm sure that nobody thought that that would ever happen. And it hasn't happened since. And it's not really, I mean, Sugarloaf is a very safe place, as are most ski mountains. But, you know, what happens when something big like that, something big and unforeseen, how do you deal with that? Coincidentally, we had had a training that fall, three months before this lift came down, specifically for lift derailment. And it started from the top of the mountain and the training went through the entire triage, evacuation, getting people into ambulances and they actually took these people all the way to the hospitals and so it was a A to Z training mission for something you know a mass casualty thing just something like this so I don't know if we jinxed ourselves, but three months later it happened and from our end of it, it went off like clockwork, you know, and, and thankfully no one was, there were no fatalities, there were some injuries, um, for sure, and those people that had the greatest injuries were moved the quickest and the first, and um, I think we had everybody off the hill within probably 35, 40 minutes, the whole line was cleared within an hour, and everybody that had to be somewhere was gone. Um, it was, it, it really went very, very well from our end as a response. So you train for those things. Um, and we do training in the fall to warm up. It's a refresher weekend. And we all go up for a weekend in usually October. And then we do refreshing all season long. You know, if we have quiet days, we'll go out and practice scenarios on the hill and simple things like splinting, etc. So when I was up there with the ski patrol, somebody described the, that, lift, that lift going down, that particular lift derailment, as being sort of your 9-11. And the 9-11 piece that was so interesting is for you as an organization was that it wasn't as big a disaster because you knew about it. I mean, you knew how to do this three months earlier. You had had some training. So as much as you can, you're trying to train for things that they might be unforeseen, but they're not impossible. They have seen, been seen before. Absolutely. I mean, those, you know, you have lifts, the potential of something like that is there. So you always try to, I guess, learn your potential, you know, um, calamities, I'll call them, and 
um, prepare as best you can for them. And um, they've, we do a good job with that up there. Uh, there's some great talent on the hill for that, you know, the, our leaders that train us for all of that. So you have to be good at, you have to be good at things like knowing how to deal with equipment and equipment failures. You have to know first aid. You have to, is it, is the EMT course, um, is that a requirement in order to be a ski patroller? Um, for NSP um, and for PSPA, at least the Sugarloaf, it's called Outdoor Emergency Care. And it's, it kind of parallels the basic EMT course um, with a wilderness twist to it. So it's, um, you know, it's like a thousand page book um, and it covers an awful lot of first responder care. And this prepares you to do anything from splinting an ankle to um, dealing with somebody who stops breathing on the hill. Correct. So you have that piece, and you also um, need to be able to ski. There's some basic level of skiing that is required for anybody who's on ski patrol because you need to be able to get to all the terrain all the way around the mountain. Yeah, um, and don't forget riders. Um, we do have snowboard patrol people, and um, equally as controlled as the skiers are. You don't have to be a big, fancy, showy skier. You just have to be strong on your skis and be able to handle the terrain. So, yeah, there's, there, there is a, a requirement for that, and they will check out your skiing or riding ability before inviting you to train. And this is in part because not only do you have to be able to ski around the mountain on your own or ride around the mountain on your own, but you also have to be able to pull a toboggan behind you potentially. Correct. And um, toboggans are, are um, once you get them figured out, they actually can control your skiing because they can act as a, as a gas pedal and a brake. And um, so once you get used to it, they're pretty easy to get around with, uh, but you, you do have to have a certain level of skiing or riding competence for sure. What are some of the things that you've seen as an individual that have impressed you the most, um, whether they be situations that you've been in or friendships that you've formed? What are some of the things that have remained with you as lasting and important as part of your relationship with the Ski Patrol? I think probably the group as a whole and the dedication to the entire process and care of the hill and care of all the customers. And then when you have that crisis and you see all of that training come together and someone who needs to be somewhere very quickly is packaged and off that mountain within 10 minutes and in an ambulance is probably a thing that presses me the most. That's what it's, you know, we really do it all for and when you see that all gel and come together, it's pretty incredible. And one of the ways that you stay connected with um, your colleagues and also up on your skills is there are a certain number of required um, days of skiing every year and a certain commitment to being a volunteer with the ski patrol. There are. Um, there's a few levels. There's an individual level, and then there's um, a couple level, and then a family level. And family level is requires 26 days. So it's... And these are full days. You can't come and do a part day. You know, it's it's uh, dawn to dusk, and so if you do the math over the season, it takes a lot. It takes a big chunk out of the season for sure. 
So when you say individual versus uh, family level, these are the levels in which you would um, be able to get season's passes? Correct, or? yeah. Okay, so that's the that would be the actual, that would be another benefit of being on the ski patrol, is being able to ski additional days on top of um, the ski patrol time. Yep, you do get your passes, so, you know, you have your free days. Um, so, yeah, that's a benefit. But, um, you know, you usually try to check in with ski patrol and make sure they don't need you on those days or that, you know, you've done a good job spreading your time out over the season and um, so that when you do go on those free days, you know, you know everything's good with the group. People who are on ski patrol are of all ages, of all backgrounds. Uh, I met with some younger women and some older men and um, some older women and people have been there for a couple years or they've been there for their 10th year like you or even longer. Um, what is it that keeps people coming back? There are um, patrollers that have been there for 20, 30 years. It's kind of a captivating job, I'll call it. Um, if you like being out in that environment, which most of us do, and having that responsibility of you know keeping the whole place safe and then having people that you're working with that have all those same sentiments just kind of keeps you coming back you know it's um it's uh it's it's an interesting job and it's you know it's just another twist on the skiing or riding adventure so you know you're not just skiing the trails over and over every single day you're actually going out and being part of the process and being part of the mountain and um, so it's fun. You have two sons, um, Will and Nick. Did they have any interest in joining the ski patrol after having seen their dad do this? They were both um, went through the bubble cover programs as kids, which is um, in every weekend group skiing training thing. So there's an instructor, usually a, a younger college person or something, that will take a group of five or seven kids and they'll have them all year and they break them into various age ranges. So my kids went through that program. Um, Nicholas went on and got his first level of teaching and then he ended up being a bubble cuffer coach. And before he left Sugarloaf, he actually did one year of patrol. And then my other son um, became a bubble cuffer coach until he went off to college. So they stayed involved but um, stayed mostly with the teaching because they were knew they were going to be off to college and they were going to be away so they wouldn't be able to continue on in the patrol work so how does this compare to your day job you build buildings this is what you do how is this alike and different um it's alike because it's another full day of work you know as i tell some of the paid patrollers i am uh, now working this will be 21 days straight of work you know if i do for a couple weekends and work three weeks as well so it's like another day of work but at the same time it takes my mind completely off work when you go to do this your head's got to be in it totally so it's kind of a vacation from my daily job how has this changed your relationship with people who are in the sugarloaf community and in the community at large how do you how has this um caused you to feel closer to people or change the way you look at um, them as individuals? I think it's drawn me into the close-knit Sugarloaf community, for sure. 
and um, really gives me an admiration for the dedication of all the departments of the mountain, you know, to pull the whole thing off. A lot of hardworking people there. So it's fun to be a part of that, and some days I'll be riding up a lift, and it's a nice day, and I see the races going on over here, and I see teaching groups going on over there, and there's kids doing flips into the airbag at the jump, and the mountain's just buzzing with people. And you just sit back and smile and say, this is great. And when the whole place is clicking, it's um, really fun to be a part of it. So it sounds like you would encourage people who might have an interest in ski patrolling to look into that possibility. Oh, sure. If you, you know, it's a big time commitment. So you want to make sure that you're ready for that. And, um, but otherwise, you can always check in with the patrol directors and see if they're looking for people. Well, Jamie, I know you're a very busy individual, and I really appreciate your coming in and speaking with us today about the ski patrol. Um, And I encourage people who are listening who might have an interest in the patrol, maybe talk with you or one of the other patrollers about your experience. We've been speaking with Jamie Gadudi, who is the president of Gadudi Builders and has been skiing at Sugarloaf since he was a teenager and can be found on the mountain as a ski patroller. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thanks for having us in. And um, just a little safety pitch, you know, anybody that's listening can always go to nsp.org and they have a safety page and can read up about um, just good on-mountain management for safety, heads-up stuff. It's a great thing for parents to look at and press upon their kids. There is kind of a skiing code, and um, I'm all for helmets. I think that's a great reminder, and I, I second that encouragement. And I hope listeners who are out there who ski or who have children that ski take the time to go to that website. Thanks so much, Jamie. All right. Thanks for having us. All right. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 169, Sugarloaf. Our guests have included Jamie Gadudi and Kip Files. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com or read about them in the December issue of Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Sugarloaf show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Content producer is Kelly Clinton, and our online producer is Ezra Wolfinger. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or go to www.lovemainradio.com 
for details.